Detroit is Different is where you get information, artistry, history, music, and even comedy. Detroit is Different, a home for the culture of Detroit. Visit online at DetroitIsDifferent.com today. All right, all right. Welcome back to the Detroit is Different podcast studios. And it's fun to be back with Detroit is Different. As usual, people always are used to me saying, this is one of my people. This is one of my people. This is not just one of my people. This is one of the community's people. A teacher that still looks like she could be a student. Uh, thank you. <laughs> Sharia, how are you doing? I'm good. How about yourself? Ah, ah. Let's <laughs> see. What adjective will I use today? Um, I don't know. Cause I am... Uh, I am doing, let's see, what's what's a good word? I am doing fabulous. Let's use that term. Great. Exactly. <laughs> I got that soul tape in my mind. That's why I'm saying that. So. <clears throat> That's what's it. So another hip-hop fan like myself, but along with hip-hop fan, you're also, as I talked about the community, uh, educator, uh, somebody dedicated to little homies, yeah. or students, children, kids, uh, whatever adjective you want to use but more so like to describe little homies the watutu um they are a big part of your life because that's where most of your life has been driven but before we get into all of that and what you're working on now we're going to talk a little bit about you in detroit like we always do Mm -hmm. city of detroit what brought your family to the city of detroit uh well the great migration pretty much like most families my mom is from North Carolina, and my dad's side of the family is from Alabama. So people came up here for jobs as well as housing, and that's what brought us to Detroit. So during that whole time period when 6 million African Americans migrated north, specifically in search of better opportunities like with the big three and everything associated with manufacturing vehicles like is what promoted a lot of black people to move in the first place. So my family was part of that. Okay, now your family being part of that, you said North Carolina, Alabama. Mm-hmm. Uh, Detroit has a lot of people from Alabama. Like it's almost like a pipeline. So right. like Alabama, Georgia, primary places when you talk to Detroiters, where your roots go from, you're gonna hear Alabama and Georgia. Mm-hmm. North Carolina, not so much. A lot mm-hmm. of people in the Carolinas actually went further east. Usually, what was it that brought your dad's family here, and was it actually your dad the first person to come to Detroit? Well, on his side, no, it was my grandfather. So they pretty much kind of came as a unit. Like Mm -hmm. he is the only, well, no, my other uncles. So he has like four brothers. Mm -hmm. So everybody is pretty much spread out. Some still stayed in Alabama, but mainly on my dad's side, my grandmother and grandfather moved up here first. And my biological father was born here. And then my mom, she and... My grandmother and my uncle, they moved up here from North Carolina. Okay. All right. So what was the uh, what was the flow? You ever been down there? Have you been back yes. to North Carolina? I've been to North Carolina and Tuscaloosa. Like. Okay. Where at in North Carolina? New Bern. Where is that? Um, it's near Raleigh. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Like, um, what, what do you remember about it? Do you still go visit? Is your family still there? Yeah. So I still have family there because my... Aunt Helen, um, she was my grandmother's sister. She had a house that was kind of like a historical site to a degree. Okay, until like explain. The turn- well, it Why? had been there for so long, and she had owned the land. So the house stayed up, and it was very, very old and rustic. Like you could tell somebody built it 
by mm-hmm. hand because the stairs were uneven. Most of it was wood. She still had like that old aluminum tub, you know what I mean, that mm-hmm. wasn't connected. But unfortunately, termites ate her house. Wow. And so they built a new house on it, which mm-hmm. is like a, I think it's like a ranch style, but I haven't seen the new house, to be honest. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so I still have family down there, and it is very rural, um, mm-hmm. very much so like country, you know, uh-huh. so... It's it's cool. I mean, it's nowhere personally I would want to mm. live. Yeah. So like old school town, because I got family in old school towns, like where the person that owns the store, like you can go to their house, knock on their door, <laughs> and be like, "Yo, I want to get some toothpaste," and they'd be like, "Hold on, man." I wouldn't necessarily. Let me go say open that. up the store. <laughs> it's like, how can I put it? It's one of those feels like everybody does know everybody, but not quite like that. Okay. Like I could go to the corner store or to the corner bar. And mm. it's like, oh, you so-and-so's people. Like, what's mm-hmm. up? We all good. We all family. Okay. So that's how that is in, in New Bern. So but small enough where, like, if you get a girlfriend in elementary yes. school, you're going to end up marrying her. More than likely if you don't okay. move. Like, yeah, that, yes. yeah, basically. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's messed up. And then the Tuscaloosa is cool. But mm. for me, I really only remember, like, all of those ants. Like, they mm. bite. And that, I remember the ants more vividly than everything else. And the fact that just... Southern hospitality in Tuscaloosa is great. Like, everybody speaks. Mm-hmm. And that was the thing that really kind of shocked me, but it was a great shock. Because, mm-hmm. like, when you go to a predominantly white institution for school, naturally, well, I won't say naturally because I can't speak for everybody, but when you go to a PWI, like, all the black and brown people speak to each other by default. You know what I mean? Because we understand a sense of community there. And then from being removed from college so many years, you get adjusted back to not speaking and not being a part of that community, unfortunately. And then going down to Alabama, everybody like, hey, how you doing? Like, talking to me? Like, I'm good, I guess, you know? Like, mm-hmm. so that was the thing I did like about Alabama, despite the red ants that attack you. So. Okay. Yeah. Now, beyond red ants into Detroit, your mom and your dad, what were your mom and dad doing? When they got here? Mm-hmm. So my mom grew up in the Brewsters. Um, my dad and his family grew up in Southwest Detroit. Okay. I just had an interview about Black Southwest Detroit mm-hmm. and just the uniqueness of that community. Yes. Uh, whereabouts? Off of Bassett and Schaefer. Hmm. So like that whole community in general, they pretty much kind of like how Hamtramck, like they brought the culture to Hamtramck. I mm-hmm. feel like that's how it is in Southwest Detroit. Mm-hmm. Like they brought the culture to Southwest like the whole notion of everybody knowing everybody. My grandma can sit on the porch and people ride past, hunk their horns, she waves. And then I'm like, Grandma, do you even know who that is? And she does. Like, oh, yeah, that's mm-hmm. so-and-so kid or that's so-and-so cousin. And everybody know everybody, you know? And when you talk about that, because so many people think that Southwest Detroit is just such a Mexican, and I'm learning even somewhat of a Puerto Rican community, mm-hmm. but it's a strong black community, especially that connection between like River Rouge, mm-hmm. Southwest Detroit, and Inkster. It's almost like a whole nother world away yes. as Detroit is defined as West Side and East Side. Right. Uh, even the skating rink that's been there, black, Three you know, years, for yeah. one of the longest running black businesses in the area that mm-hmm. connects families. Yes. Um, what does your dad, like, what did he tell you about growing up in that type of neighborhood? Um, and what did you hear from your uncles? And Well, my uncle pretty much is the one who put me up. And my, un- my auntie and my uncle pretty much put me up on game about Southwest. Mm-hmm. Because um, 
my father, he was incarcerated for most of my life. So he didn't really tell me much about Southwest mm-hmm. Detroit. So mm-hmm. with that, um, just from my grandparents being active in my life and my aunt and uncle, we were a part of it. Like my mom took us out there on a regular basis when we were kids. So I would take my little cousin and I would be riding our bikes around the neighborhood, going up to Sabbath, you know, kicking it. So the biggest thing is just that the commu- it's a it's a great sense of community but it's also like very a lot of working class people and a lot of how can i put it a lot of people who who had succumbed to unfortunate circumstances i will say and unlike a lot of the east side and west side some of the some of the struggles that impacted the east side and the west side communities uh, for for different reasons it took longer to get over in southwest detroit uh, uh one of the people kevin hansen that ran johansen johansen charles art gallery for so many years would say mm-hmm. like yeah you know well, you could shovel the snow for the dentist and then you know you could have money off on your dentistry mm-hmm. and also this that stock of land was so close to the factories as yes. many people right now are saying like you know cancer asthma uh, yes. a lot of the uh the the challenges health challenges mm-hmm. that exist over in that community that was some of the last black folks in detroit to get their homes right were over there right um now this hit hard uh like you know late 80s 90s it hit hard and Mm -hmm. some of the challenges that were affecting west and east side detroit began to become pervasive in that community um so almost like simultaneously as you as we're watching perry watson and jalen rose win like be like the greatest high school basketball team ever Mm -hmm. it's also a whole nother new reality existing in southwest detroit for those families right um as you talk about some of those challenges and you touched on it, uh, your your family and, mm-hmm. and, and being connected to it, is your family still rooted over there? Did they stay over there? Uh, what was their response to it uh, as certain people definitely did leave? Yeah, my family is still there. So in all honesty, like my uncle bought the house next door to my grandmother. Mm-hmm. And he also owned, well, he owned and I think he's buying it again. A hair shop in Southwest. So they're deeply okay. rooted in Southwest. Okay. And once my father got out of prison, he also lives in Southwest. So they all went back. I mean, or stayed rather. Okay. And for uh, for that, what's your grandma's take on staying over there? I have no idea because uh, her circumstances changed now too because she's suffering from dementia. So... That's mm-hmm. the thing. So her opinion in regards to a lot of things is limited now. But just growing up, I mean, what do you remember her saying about staying over here as certain people did leave the community? Mainly, she just she didn't really have anything negative ever to say about Southwest. Mm-hmm. It was more so just a matter of making sure she knew where me and my cousins were going when we would ride our bikes and be adventurous around the neighborhood and making sure we knew who was who on what block who we belong to and to make sure we represented our household, you know, properly. So that was the main thing. And like discussions about the the factories and the conditions over there, that was always like a topic to a degree in the sense that the air quality was bad and what are people going to do? But you got to think some of these same people worked in the factories. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of hard to, I guess, 
advocate for things that are paying your bills, you know, mm-hmm. or should I say be an advocate against things that are paying your bills. So yeah. in all honesty, she didn't really speak badly and neither did my aunt and uncle speak badly about the area because they have a lot of good history and memories over there in Southwest. And I think that's part of the we- reason too, that they didn't leave. Mm-hmm. Um, but nobody really sp- spoke bad about the area. Okay. And your mom, you said the Brewsters, which mm-hmm. definitely is a historic community. And just from another podcast recently, <laughs> like many people look at it like and think housing project and think to themselves uh, that it is a place where, you know, like the, the idea of good times. Mm-hmm. But the Brewsters, especially from its inception, as I'm learning more about it, was specifically set up and selected for a lot of what would be what we would consider middle-class families. They could not even find housing just due right. to the housing crisis of not allowing black people any home ownership. Exactly. It was a lot of discrimination. And you got to think, too, a lot of the, the projects were built as forms of discrimination and displacement. Mm-hmm. So, and that was part of the issue. Like, you have all of these people during the Great Migration coming to places like Detroit, Chicago, and various other cities in the Midwest, mm-hmm. and then they're still being discriminated against. And Detroit has a rich history in regards to middle class and upper middle class African American families being here because of the opportunities that were given given to them here. Mm-hmm. So, with that, um, it was. It was interesting because my grandmother and grandfather were smart, hardworking people. So it made no sense in regards to why they couldn't. But based on the financial circumstances, as well as discrimination, that's where she grew up. What did she tell you about Brewster's? (laughs) She told me a lot. I mean, just in the sense of like, you know, even though, again, it was still a sense of community, you still had your drug dealers and then you had like people who were up and coming celebrities with Motown and you had a mixture of everything in the Brewsters mm-hmm. um according to my mom but she was just she mainly talked about like her remembering and and being pretty much locked in their apartment during the riots and just like she shared stories about like <laughs> high school parties and going to Murray Wright and how she would have to make sure she didn't hate on her brothers if they was hating on her, like, during their skip days or whatever. So mm-hmm. just mainly good nostalgic stories because that's where she grew up. But naturally, um, given the fact that's where she grew up, she wanted to. She was very adamant about getting a house in her adulthood. Okay. And just, like, noticing some of the differences generationally between the two of us, She, I can understand why that was very important to her. Okay. Now, house. Where did you grow up? I grew up in, well, first we started off on Myers, then we moved to Rosedale. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, mainly okay. Rosedale. So, Rosedale Park. Mm-hmm. Rosedale Park is definitely in a historic Detroit neighborhood. Mm-hmm. What was it like growing up over there? It was cool. Like, to be honest, when we started off over there, our block was fairly diverse. Like, mm-hmm. we had some... Asian neighbors that lived down the street. We had white neighbors on the block. And I'm just talking like between Puritan and and Florence. So, yeah, between those two, like we had a pretty diverse block. Mm -hmm. But I enjoyed it. Like everybody was cool. I had friends. It was cool. Okay. And then did you go to school over there? I went to Halley. Well, I went to Detroit Urban. So that's off Greenfield. So not quite. Then Mm -hmm. I went to Halley. And that was on Linwood and Grove. 
And then Renaissance was close, so. Okay, Florida. so so not necessarily. You are always on the the fat, fast track of good student, as they <laughs> say. Because I'm a Halle uh, Raider as well. <laughs> I don't know how Halle let me in, but somehow they did. What was Halle like for you? And, and then talk a little bit about Halle, because people don't talk about it now, yeah. as it's, uh, the, the school still exists, but right. it's, uh, it's Paul it's Robeson, Paul Robeson mm-hmm. Malcolm X. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I loved Halle, to be honest, like, Detroit Urban was was cool, and but the shift to Halley was something different. Like it was a culture shock for me, to be honest, because when you go to private school to public school, it's just a big difference. And I'm not gonna lie, like my mom, she definitely had me nervous. She like, you know, every I don't know everybody at the public school now, so you got to make sure you hold your own. These kids ain't no suckers, like so. I'm Hilarious. thinking I'm about to be fighting on the first day, you Hilarious. know, but. No, Hallie was great to me because even though all of the teachers were different, they challenged you in a, a number of ways. And we were reading novels in like sixth grade. Like it was nothing. You know what I mean? So that's why I loved Hallie. Because, they were assigned to me. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to say that. I don't yeah. know about reading. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I read them, you know. so Somebody. Right. So um, I thought it was a great school. Who? What What teacher stood out from Hallie to you? Ah, oh, man. Miss... Well, it was a couple, but I can't, I can't remember her last name, but she was the English teacher for eighth grade. And even though it was so rude, she stood out because she used to play this game called Who's the Dummy? <laughs> and I just thought like, you know, at the time it was rude. Cause I'm like, why are we, why is she even titling? I was, uh, the let's game see, my eighth grade, what my eighth grade English was Miss Snee, 8106. So I don't think it was Miss Snee because no, she, she was an older, she was an older lady. And I don't think it was Miss Shelby either. I had her. I remember Miss Shelby, grade. yeah. No, it wasn't her either, but I can't remember her last name right now. But, um, but who's the dummy game is what stood out to me. Okay. And even though the title sucked. It was still cool because you didn't want to be the dummy, you know, and mm-hmm. it was mainly based on comprehension questions of whatever book we were discussing. So, yeah, and, and it was a different type of school too. Yeah, uh, like to this day, it's a couple people I'm still close with from that school. Mm-hmm. Um, making sure if I did take the bus, the kids from Pelham didn't, you know, right. Exactly. <laughs> so from there to Renaissance, what was Renaissance like for you? Renaissance again was. Uh, a step up so each time it was a step up but renaissance was intense um great but intense and Mm -hmm. that was the first time i learned that really school culture makes a world of difference in regards to how people perceive education explain so at renaissance it was nothing for no for a teacher or anybody to tell you if you can't cut it here or leave you know it was it was very very intense in, in that degree and when i think about even at times when i cheated like we were still smart cheaters. Like mm-hmm. I was programming a TI-83 in mm-hmm. like 10th grade to input answers and create a whole new program on a calculator. So even when you think about that, so the competition was real, but um, it was great in regards to transitioning to college. I didn't have a problem because Renaissance taught me a lot about, <laughs> Renaissance taught me a lot about um, time management as well as prioritizing different things in regards to what's what should be first on my list to do and what should be last and it taught me a lot in regards to what I do now with organizational skills like I was a part of senate in my senior year I had put together like the school's homecoming and it was because our teacher just simply 
asked questions and gave us the autonomy to plan and to do and helped us with that piece. So. And you were at, as they say, like nowadays, the old building. Mm-hmm. You're old enough to say you were at the old building of Renaissance. Yep. Uh, do you think that the culture of being in a space that's so that that's smaller uh, changed also some of the 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 feel for the high school? I think so. I mean, I can't really say because I haven't been in the big building. For but real? Not really. Like I went there and checked it out, but mm-hmm. not like. Mm-hmm. I can't really say okay. it would be a big difference. I can only go off of like what my goddaughter told me because she graduated two years ago from Renaissance. And she said it was still intense, but she also said it was a lot more. How she, how, I don't know. She's also rude. So I don't know. Like she, she kind of rude. So I love her though. But mm-hmm. I'll say this. She just said that the standards have been lowered for certain kids to be there. And like, she felt like a lot of people pacify their kids there as opposed to like making them go hard. Yeah. And I don't, I personally didn't feel that way in the old building. Like Mm -hmm. everybody went hard. Everybody's parents were about the academic life and it was, (laughs) and it wasn't, um, it wasn't the whole thing of parents arguing with teachers or administration about their kids getting certain grades that they may not have earned based on like what my goddaughter told me. So it may be a difference just in general with culture and not necessarily the building. Okay. And as we talk about that, your parenting, your mom, what mm-hmm. was happening with your mom at that time when you were at Renaissance and Hallie? What was she working in? What was she doing? She was a teacher. Okay. Where yep. at? Um, she taught at, I think during that time she was at Emerson. Mm-hmm. So she taught at Emerson and then she taught at DIA, mm-hmm. Detroit international academy for young women so she was teaching was it important for her to have a daughter in public school being in the district herself did she think like that what was her take no um her biggest thing was that for for years she was a single parent so that was pretty much the biggest thing because starting off in private school it worked for so long but when you're a teacher and you paying for two ski- two kids in um, private school, that's a lot. So that's how I wound up going to Halley because mm-hmm. funds was getting limited. Okay. And your sister. Mm-hmm. So what, where was your sister? What was going on? So while I was at Halley, she was at Renaissance. And mm-hmm. then when I was in Renaissance, she was at Bowling Green. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that carries on and that and that goes on and and what when you say single single parent and your father that relationship mm-hmm. as he mm-hmm. was incarcerated mm-hmm. uh, did you, did you keep a bond with your father what was that like not really because mm-hmm. um, again like he had been incarcerated since I was a baby so I was young when he got locked up and then he was in and out of prison like I said until I got out of college. Like, I graduated from college, well, undergrad in 07, and that's when he was finally released, and he's been out since 07. Mm -hmm. So, um, overall, like, he would call, which was cool, but as I got older, like, I learned more about the system as well as, like, systemic oppression when it came to some of the issues that a lot of post-incarcerated people go through, you know, like... When it comes to, like, the three strikes issue, that's what affected my dad as well. And then, like, two, 
when you think about it, you can only do so much when you on parole and you got to check in with your parole officer and you can't go out of town and get a job. And then if you put on a, on a resume or put a, excuse me, if you generate a resume and it's a big gap in regards to your career and work history, people looking at that, or if you put it on an application that you've been locked up, you're discriminated against. So it's so many factors that doesn't even help people coming out of prison to actually be rehabilitated mm-hmm. one and to transition into the workforce yeah so you know so again like our relationship wasn't the best but i'm not gonna lie and say that with gaining maturity as well as more spirituality with forgiveness as well as understanding the system that helped me in regards to building a relationship once he got out Okay, and now as he looks back at it, what does he what does he speak on? Or does he even open up to you about that? Because many men definitely, you know, expressing themselves uh, emotionally, mm-hmm. especially in reference to um, showing a lot of contrition. That's not necessarily the that's not the chip on a lot of men's shoulders. Right. Well, he opened up more so about his health challenges because he did sue the state because he wound up having. um issues affecting his health based on asbestos Hmm. and so he did sue and he wound up having to get a new hip because of some of the conditions in prison so that was one thing he did talk about but are kids listening to this or not really well basically in a nutshell he told me like don't get locked up because it's two options in prison or even in jail either you fucking or you fighting Mm -hmm. and that was pretty much it yeah yeah, and I mean, for a lot of the people listening, for a lot of the people I know that done served uh, time, yeah, prison is not, prison is not the ideal state. It's not the ideal situation. No. Uh, clearly, that's why they're not labeled as correctional facilities anymore, mm-hmm. because it takes a lot of self-reflection, self-discovery, and self-love to even move beyond that you know the ptsd of so many people in our community as we look at the returning citizen Mm -hmm. i guess that's the politically correct term right but i i still say a guy that's fresh out (laughs) you know (laughs) and how they interact with our society if you fresh out you can sometimes tell you can feel that fresh out energy (laughs) there's a guy at family dollar the other day it was like shit like he got that energy like you better help him <laughs> right. help him find these light bulbs <laughs> so so um so also balancing this moving forward mm-hmm. and in some ways you're, you're touching things that your father's never touched mm-hmm. in reference to college in reference to um what you're accomplishing and then even getting a perspective for for this all mm-hmm. um that takes a lot of that that's humility even in you like for the child to see you know see things that the parent doesn't see mm-hmm. um have you you know as you as you've connected and as you say through faith through spirituality and mm-hmm. then your understanding of here we go i'm sounding like farrakhan the injustice system <laughs> right. that we have in this nation exactly uh have you reflected on that and, and and just being able to see the role he plays as your father but also have an understanding that in some facets I'm going to have more insight and understanding than he will. Yes. So, I mean, I have done a great deal of reflecting just off the strength of the fact that 
you know, when you're young, you don't really understand, like, why they can't do right or, you know what I mean? Like, it's a lot of blaming. So, Mm -hmm. because it's a lack of understanding. And I will just say, like, too, it's a lot of kids in Michigan. Like, I think the stat is one in every five kids have had a parent that's been locked up. Mm -hmm. So, it affects a lot more of the population than we honestly think. And unfortunately, too, we know that it's a disproportionate amount of black and brown people. And where in Michigan do you have the most black and brown people? In Detroit. Mm -hmm. So all in all, like, yes, I have done a lot of reflecting and a a lot of thinking as well as, like, putting things in perspective for myself. Because I'm not going to lie and say that it wasn't hard coming up with understanding certain things. Like, well, if he got out then, why, why couldn't he just do right? Like, why couldn't he like avoid going back to prison because it just didn't make sense to me but again with getting older and understanding how things aren't in in their favor and it's not really a good transitional phase between getting out of prison or jail for a long time to coming back into society because you got to think when my dad got out of prison we had smartphones we had ipads and ipods and stuff like that so can you imagine like getting out and you've been in there pretty much since late 80s early 90s you know what i mean like you missed a whole bunch of stuff so the thing was um in essence like for me it made me a more well-rounded individual i would say because going to even visit him in prison that shit was terrible like it's it's really not a place that you want to be like it's depressing yeah so and and then even from that perspective, mm-hmm. um, that Southwest Detroit neighborhood is also the neighborhood where most people even connect mm-hmm. Southwest T and Big Meech. Yep. So the uh, the the founding members of the Black Mafia family mm-hmm. who in the 2000s are like seen as, I guess, like the uh, largest drug syndicate uh, of, of throughout urban communities mm-hmm. right from the Southwest community. Um, connecting to like a, a, a series of different families, mm-hmm. not just the Flinnery family mm-hmm. of Big Meech. But even in that story, uh, and obviously what's pervasive has been hip hop. And I think 50 Cent is looking to make a series out of it, the same yeah. way he made power into a series. Mm-hmm. It's like a, like the, 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 the this is a, a facet of life where you can be a champion. This is where you can be a warrior. This mm-hmm. is where white American cannot oppress you. It's through a criminal element. Mm-hmm. That is a pervasive narrative in our community. This is mm-hmm. where you can really hold yourself and assert yourself as a real man. So um I look at like some of the guys in the late eighties mm-hmm. as I'm just I'm a couple days older than you, as they say. <laughs> And just watching what happened, um, what happened with the drug sentencing laws as they started triggering, Mm -hmm. you know, like this goes a lot into like the crime bill and the foundation for what those drug sentencing laws became Mm -hmm. as crack, quote unquote, became so pervasive. Right. And um, was looked at as, you know, um, it was it caused a big divide in our community. Yes. And many people. you know like it struck and it hit Mm -hmm. i mean what's your take on like just that idea of of why i think it's a theory but 
do you agree? Do you not agree? Uh, what, what's your take on just the idea of crime being a place and space where black men can have, you know, can can almost take that rugged individual slice of the American dream more so than the the traditional route of that seems to be locked doors? Well, I I just think it's interesting that uh, you say that it's not a form of oppression to a degree because it is. Mm -hmm. And when you think about the history of this country, like drugs was part of the foundation, too. Mm -hmm. But because it was legalized, for instance, if you go to our nation's capital, you can see little tobacco plants in the ceiling, like in gold plated. Mm -hmm. So the whole thing is like. Hemp was more so used back then, which is a cousin of cannabis, but they realized that tobacco was more addictive. So they started to, not only was cotton and sugar, of course, big exports of the U.S. economy at the time, but so was tobacco. So the thing is, this country got started, again, because of the enslaved and drugs. So when you think about it, it's oppressive still because in the 80s with the whole crack epidemic and whatever else they want to call it, the problem wasn't so much of achieving the American dream as much as it was that we fall into the whole narrative of picking yourself up by the bootstraps and things of that nature. But the biggest issue wasn't the drugs. It was the fact that poverty was the issue. Like they weren't addressing that. And then not only that, they weren't attacking the people who actually had like a, a large amount of cocaine. Like to be honest, if you actually understand the chemistry and the breakdown of crack, that ain't even like the full, you know, elements of like cocaine. So you're not even going after the big fish. You're dealing with the ponds because it's easier to lock up black and brown people who have issues of poverty and result to drugs or selling drugs. And then here you have more people feeding into private prisons and systems and then putting them back pretty much in enslavement. So to me, I don't agree with the narrative of a sense that you can achieve the American dream and get a piece of the pie through drugs because you can't because it's still oppressive. Like it wasn't set up for anybody actually to succeed. And then let alone if you watch the money and then become legit, you still might have a conspiracy case against you because that also happened to one of my family members. Like that happens to many. Yeah. So I the mean, whole thing is just like I uh, I think you explained it well. Uh in some ways, I completely agree. In other ways, I, it's it's other layers in that story. Yeah. But almost, I would say, everything is so distorted for black and brown people, but yes. especially black people in America because of our distorted relationship with the nation. So right. because of that, it creates whatever facet of life you want to pursue. Mm -hmm. It becomes difficult. But crime, I think, is double difficult in my right. mind just, just due to some of the access you may have to it is it may seem easier to touch mm -hmm. but almost everything that's easier to touch for us becomes a challenge even like food deserts right. and uh and and people may say education which brings me to the next big question mm -hmm. of your journey but also getting you in a classroom what led you to want to become a teacher honestly i had tried everything i wanted to do at the time so okay what's everything you wanted to do let's go down the list <laughs> At first, I thought I wanted to be a judge, but I didn't judge. know. Yeah. Okay. Was that because of television? Was that because of? Uh, um, no, I just thought I made Law like, and Order. <laughs> <laughs> I just I liked like social studies. Judging people. <laughs> <laughs> I like social studies, and I thought highly in regards to my judgment. So. 
Okay. I was just like, maybe I should be a judge, but I didn't know you had to be a lawyer before you could be a judge at the mm. time. So I was like, yeah. I don't want to be a lawyer. Like, no. Mm. So that was out. Then I thought about being a fashion designer because I could draw, and then I had dreams of stuff I was wearing that I didn't see in real life. I'm with that. Yeah, and so one of uh, my church family members taught me how to sew, but that was like hella boring to me. So I did, did you not have any of the gear you made. Yes, so okay. <laughs> I, yeah. I kept it as a keepsake. Does your mama have it, or do you have it? I have it. Yeah. Okay. So. Um, can you wear that gear, or are you gonna wear the the Sharia shirt? <laughs> no. No, not at all. I'm much bigger than I was when I learned how to sew. So, yeah, no. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, I didn't like sewing, so I was out. That was out. Um, okay. Then I thought about going into business, and that's what I started off with with undergrad. The one I saw, like. What business? I was going into business administration. So, so you were just like, business something. Mm -hmm. I'll figure it out. Yep. That's okay. exactly what it was. Right. But when I went to the orientation, and saw all of the math classes, I was like, I just got through pre-calc and just looking at, I didn't understand why I needed it. So I was just like, really all you need is stats? I mean, why, why, why do I need this? Why do I need calculus for business? Mm -hmm. So, and then I knew I was on scholarship, so I'm like, uh, I know my strengths. I don't know about all of this because I'm not trying to lose that money if I can't cut a class. So okay. I changed that, and then I went to the um, School of Education and I took it as a sign when I got there because it was this random dude who sat with us at my sister's graduation. And I'm like, we don't even know this man. Like, why are you sitting at our table? You know what I mean? Like, wasn't part of the family and he didn't have a ticket with us. You obviously don't have that Southern hospitality <laughs> in don't. you. So I was like, mm, who mm, is this? Mm. And just a man that wanted yeah, to eat. Yeah, like sitting at our table. So anywho, it was funny because he wound up being one of the advisors at the College of Education. So I just took it as a sign, like, okay, this is cool. This is where I'm yeah, supposed to be. Good you ain't throw no biscuit out of Right, there. right. But, I, I mean, I did give him a side eye, like. <laughs> like right, I remember right, you. <laughs> right. We're only taking four of your credits <laughs> out of their 40. <laughs> <sighs> good times. So, yes, that's what led me to the School of Education. Like, okay. Mm -hmm. And what did your mom say as a teacher when you said, I'm going to the School of Education? She was cool about it. She was just like, so you want to do, like, do you want to teach little kids, like, secondary or elementary? And I was like, mm, secondary, so. Okay. Yeah, so she was cool about it. All right, so let's talk a little bit about that journey. Mm -hmm. Where did it start? Where, what was, what was the run? I started in rural Ohio in Fremont. Okay. And that, again, another moment in life with a culture shock, because um, mm -hmm. I learned a lot about rural America and I was only one of two black staff members mm -hmm. so that was very uh uncomfortable at times but mm -hmm. it was cool so um yeah I started there and then went on to be a counselor in Lansing and mm. that was also interesting because you know Lansing it's a city but I guess for me mm. it wasn't like Detroit so I was like they acting hard in here. Like, they not yeah. hard. Like, get out of here. So, that was weird. But um, it is fairly diverse in Lansing, too, though. So, that was cool. And from Lansing, I came back to Detroit and started off in elementary school as a paraprofessional. Then What's a paraprofessional? So, it's like a co-teacher. Okay. Yep. So, started off there because apparently your license from Ohio doesn't transfer to Michigan. So, I okay. had to take a job to before I could retake the test. So 
I was a paraprofessional in elementary school. Then from there, I became a middle school teacher, and then this charter school I was working at closed down. Um, then I went to another charter school, then went to a high school, and then I stayed in high school for a while until two years ago. Mm-hmm. So in 2018, I became an attendance officer, and that was also different. A culture shock. Yeah, it was. <laughs> because, you know, when you're in the classroom, it's one thing. But when you're trying to get kids to come to school and talk to parents mm-hmm. and provide resources yeah. and explain the importance as to why they need to be in that seat, and when you hear these stories, like, I had a student tell me, like, Miss Ayers, I'm not coming to school because I need to feed my baby. And she's not latching. And I don't have the money to buy a bunch of formula. So do I let my baby starve just so I can be there? Or do I stay home? And it was just like when somebody gives you that type of question in high school, and it's not something that I ever had to worry about, what do you do with that? Skip school. Exactly. Or, like, even with some of the young men who were fathers, they was like, Miss Ayers, I got to work. I got kids. Like, plural in high school yeah no so like i said that wasn't my journey so mm-hmm. it was another culture shock Getting some you know? trojans <laughs> i mean i wish you know what i mean like i wish i could have just but and then from there um i left out of that realm and became a program associate with parent academy so uh, it's a lot of things within the dps mm-hmm. that um graduated in 2001 a lot of stuff has changed, mm-hmm. uh, and this is back to the institutional of white uh, of, uh, of 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 poverty, racism, uh, systemic racism. Like it's tragic what's happened to Detroit public schools, and how it's happened in twenty years mm-hmm. is more tragic. You know, just the the difference between now and then. Mm-hmm. Um, so let, let's talk about some of what it was like in your classroom and what was the flow. Um, how did you establish yourself in the classroom? Uh, one of the key things I always highlight as the president of Northwestern High School's Alumni Association, mm-hmm. uh, and most of our alumni association are people that graduated in the 60s, maybe the 70s. And mm-hmm. I tell them, like, the school is completely different. Even with, uh, we, we give away turkeys every year. Mm-hmm. And they're like, okay, that's cool. But it's such transience in where the students live just due to the jobs and due to what, what it is. A kid starts in September there across the street from Northwestern by you know, November, they may be in, you know, in Brightmore. Right. And then in, in that same student in March may be, you know, across the street from Southeastern. Yeah, that's true. So even delivering turkeys becomes a, a what freeway am I getting on? Exactly. So let alone what bus am I taking to get to school? Mm-hmm. Um, w- w- what was it like in the classroom for you establishing the flow um, and, and just kind of connecting with those high school students as you were connecting with them Mm -hmm. and what became a reality as a resource, uh, what resources you feel like people like myself or people watching this can give? Well, I think really the best thing that people like yourself and others watching could, could give is just their support, whether it be through career day or starting or trying to get some mentorship going in the school, like, it's a number of things because you have to think like it's so much more than people's socioeconomic statuses that affects them, you know? So 
we can only do so much to take care of the basic needs, but it's a lot of emotional issues that the kids have. And it's a lot of things that affect them and they need to see examples of resiliency. Mm-hmm. And so whether it's, I mean, like when you came to my classrooms a, a few times and just even let them know about entrepreneurship or encourage them in regards to doing more things outside of the boxes that they may be in, you know? So that's what I think first really? off. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm surprised. I'm surprised that, uh, that impact of what I was laying on the little homies. Yeah. A lot connected. of them ask like, can he do that rap or can, can he come back and speak? And you know, cause when, yeah. So Maybe they talked like about I did something with my life <laughs> because that's what matters, you know? So, um, but for myself, like really, trying to set a foundation in the classroom. I think most of the kids just related or were receptive to me because I'm pro-black and I've always been Mm pro-black. And so part of my teachings in regards to teaching history, um, always made sure that they saw themselves represented in whatever I was teaching. And that, and that is even so, uh, different now because, um, I'm going to just give you the the Northwestern situation. We give away a scholarship every year. Mm -hmm. We give away actually three scholarships. Mm -hmm. uh, And then we have access to another scholarship. Last year, we didn't even get any students to apply for the scholarship. And we have a college advisor and we talk to the college advisor and it's like, well, you know, the kids got to write an essay. And basically, they just got to write, you know, I'm Andre. I want to go to Wayne, Wayne, you know, WC3. Mm -hmm. And I want to be an engineer. And it's like, bro, they go free a uh, free thousand dollars. You know right. what I'm saying? But forever. even the pacing, just due to the testing and the way that what's happening in the classroom is so different. Mm-hmm. The freedom to do what you said is not as accessible to just say, all right, the book says we're supposed to do this, mm-hmm. but in reality, we kind of gotta respond to that. Mm-hmm. Like, what's your take on that? And I know I've heard the reasoning for that because certain teachers were a little too off the book. Right. And then, but for other teachers that, that freedom, like how do you feel about that? That what's happening in the classroom that's being so monitored, that's being so like, I guess uh, orchestrated where teachers in some ways are being more like machines than they're being educators. First of all, I think it's a, a travesty to be honest because that's part of the reason why I left the classroom so you know in all in all honesty it's it's sad but um I really think that we're trying to appeal to the student as opposed to uplift the student explain that so for instance um I was my feelings were hurt in regards to leaving the classroom because I do love teaching and I specifically like teaching urban youth but the thing was at uh, at my old job I had gotten written up because 30 percent of my 150 caseload had failed so but did they really fail well yeah they had us so if they really failed are you supposed to pass them but see that's the thing so again I got written up and I read so they gave me this paperwork and it basically said if the problem continues to persist, it could be grounds for my termination. So when mm. you think about it, if 30% of your your caseload is failing and then you're asking me to sign this paperwork 
saying that if they fail again, I could be fired. Where does that leave you as an educator? It puts you in a, in a messed up situation because it's like, if I don't pass these kids, that could cost me my livelihood. How's that right? Mm. So the whole thing is you're putting a compromised position. So if you're not basically pacifying the kid or doing everything to make sure that they pass. And, and again, I guess my take on it is this, like you don't want to crush anybody's spirit in regards to academia with failing them, mm-hmm. but failure is a part of life and you can uplift the kid and try mm-hmm. to help them in regards to them failing. You know, like I had kids who just said, I'm simply not a good test taker and this is why I failed. And then I said, okay, well, what are you good at? Because maybe we can modify your form of assessment, you know, like, mm-hmm. but the thing is, um, like I said, Kari, I just think that we're pacifying them instead of uplifting them. Like it needs to be more things put in place to challenge them, to uplift them in the sense that, okay, if you're not good at this and you're good at that, let's hone into what you're good at, but then also strengthen the things you're not good at. So if, like I said before, if I have a student that's good at art, then your assignment might be a short essay to go along with a mural that you design. You know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. Just the form of assessment in general, I think, could be changed. But I also think that we need to hold the kids accountable and stop competing in regards to social media and competing with some of, like, what we perceive these kids to be. Because, to be honest, like, kids adapt well. And whatever culture you set up in the classroom or whatever environment you set up in a school and whatever environment you cultivate, they will adjust to. Hmm. And I like that way of thinking. And as you build that, that causes for systems that need to be structured and solid as well. Mm-hmm. It's so much, it, it, it's like a, 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 a world of chaos. You know, principals change mm-hmm. sometimes in the middle of the year. Uh, teachers may leave sometimes in the middle of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the, the consistency itself. Mm-hmm. And definitely thinking the game theory that I had when I was a kid, you're you're looking for, as you say, the mm-hmm. competitive edge of how to do less. You know, for me, it was like, how do I do less and still talk to this girl mm-hmm. or get back to writing my rap mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, so almost like being two steps ahead. But that as you talk about the culture that's cultivated, mm-hmm. if you cultivate that culture, it takes some trust in the in in people beyond an institution itself Mm -hmm. and being a dps right now is really kind of coming from up from the ashes Mm -hmm. uh one of the other realities of dps is dps is paying back debt yes uh that was incurred through the state of michigan when the state of michigan um i guess people can label it takeover or whatever but Mm -hmm. when the state of michigan (laughs) co-opted Detroit Public Schools for a billion dollar bond when I was graduating and then took that billion dollars and then put it further into debt where now Detroit Public Schools is its own entity, but Mm -hmm. it still is paying back debt. So any money that even comes from a millage is going back to pay back a debt that was incurred through the state of Michigan. So Mm -hmm. it's not even really money, you know, the money one for one, Mm -hmm. it's shackled, you know, Mm -hmm. which 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 is even tougher right you know so now um 
working with the district in this facet, mm-hmm. how do you feel about um, the, the, the livelihood and the viability because the landscapes of schools themselves look so different now with charter schools? Mm-hmm. It's, I'm not going to lie, it's, it's kind of tough because I was um, discussing this, honestly, with my mother this morning um, from this little panel discussion I had gone to. But mm-hmm. anywho, um, it's tough. But I do find joy in it because being in this facet, I can help parents understand their claim to the monies. So part of my job as well is to increase parental involvement. And part of that is making sure they understand how to use their Title I dollars. Because 1% of every Title I budget goes to families and communities. Mm -hmm. But a lot of parents don't understand that they have access to that. And even though 1% doesn't sound like a lot, at some schools, that's like $15,000. Yeah. So when you think about it, if you have $15,000 for supplies or providing like access to computers for parents or a space in regards to like somewhere they can study or if they want to be there to help out the school or to help out the kids or have an educational field trip, whatever, they have claims to, to those monies. So with that, um, it's a little difficult because – with the competition of charter schools, we're fighting for kids to be there. And it's become such a business. Yeah. And then it's such a weird business, too, because a kid could be at the charter school till count day. Yep. Which makes this so unique. Mm-hmm. And then the charter school can kick them out. Exactly. And the public school has to welcome them in because it's a public resource. Right. Yep. But even with that, it's still just a matter of even understanding count day. Like, that's another thing where, again, it's a challenge because parents look at count day, and I've heard parents tell me this as an attendance officer, like, y'all just want the kids to be there to get get our money and increase salaries. I'm not taking them to school for that, blah, blah, blah. But in all honesty, that's money that goes towards the schools. Like, and and it's frustrating to me because black people spend a lot at these casinos and on lotteries and that money is supposed to go to the schools, but the money is disseminated to, to the schools based on attendance and test scores. And I have challenges with, I have challenges with that too, being both the metrics. It's funny. I'm, I'm on my soapbox. You're like leading me <laughs> to all of my points that I have to say in every, if you come to a Northwestern alumni meeting yeah. at Northwestern high school, the general public can come Every Saturday, every first Saturday at 10 o'clock, you will hear me giving these points. Right. And it's tough to base it on attendance and test scores because one school will the, one school's doing great with test scores. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then the school down the street will close. Right. Because of test scores. And now you're going to accept all the kids with bad test grades, <laughs> which will create the cycle again. Or this school's doing great with test scores. Mm-hmm. But it has low attendance. Right. So now we got to welcome in kids with bad test scores. <laughs> it's like a it's like a circle of like, OK, this is such a clusterfuck. <laughs> it makes no sense unless this is perpetual design. Then I hear about the stuff that kids are doing out at Cranbrook. Yeah, right. And in and, and, and school systems outside of Detroit with like interactive learning, artistic spaces, yeah. uh, not even not even in class, out of classroom learning, mm-hmm. just things that it's like, okay, all of that sounds like exactly what a lot of these kids would love. Right. But the system is set up because it's like, psh, all of y'all fail math. 
We need more math teachers here. We don't have any science teachers. I mean, it's a planetarium sitting in the middle of Northwestern High School, mm. but it will not be put to use right. because of a lack of funding. Because it it's it's kind of both. It's like not even funding as much as to run. You need a teacher that can teach in planetarium but mm -hmm. the resources to get the teacher that can teach in a planetarium will not be spent because the test scores at northwestern dictate that you need more english and math teachers there right without thinking to themselves like can we think a little bit off the box of, of saying that the planetarium can be used as an english and math resource i mean it's a solar system that kids can walk into mm -hmm. i mean you you would think that but but this is and that's why I say it's imperative to understand the systems. And that's, again, what I like about my job now. Mm -hmm. Because the truth is, it, we all know it's power in numbers and it's power in knowledge, you know? Yeah. And so in a lot of other school districts and a lot of other schools, speaking of Cranbrook, they have a strong parent population. Yeah. And the whole thing is things don't just fly in those areas because the parents will say something. Or they'll rally against it or rally for certain things. Yeah. So, again, with with the the realm that, I, that I'm in now helps with that because I have access to the parents. And I can go and talk with the parents so that they can understand their rights and their roles within DPS. And that's cool because, again, they set up this department for that to happen, you mm -hmm. know. And that's what part of Parent Academy is all about, just making sure we provide resources and, and knowledge as well as workshops and anything to help the parents become better. Because if you build strong parents, you got stronger ki children, you know, and, and a stronger community. So I, I wholeheartedly agree. But when it's all said and done, Kari, it comes, it comes down to the money. And systemically, yeah, it sucks. But until people are educated about civics, taxes, and where their money can go or will go, then how can we change it? Yeah. Now, um, this kind of goes also into like a parent saying like, OK, what about Parenthood Network? And I don't even hear anything really about Parenthood Network and programming like that. Mm -hmm. That was funded in a lot of ways through some Title One funds, but also some granting and foundation. But uh, what's different about this entity itself? Then Parent Network? Yep. So I'm not I'm not even going to lie. I don't even know that much about Parent Network. Like, mm -hmm. are we talking about Detroit Parent Network? Mm hmm. Yeah, so they've come to like some of our summer on the block, so I'm not even sure, to be honest. Mm -hmm. But um, with our department in particular, it's a little bit different because this came from the superintendents. Like, um, he did like a, how can I put it, some research and things of that nature when he was back in school. So it was designed to pretty much enhance parental involvement, period, and like making sure we get PTAs back in the schools as well as um, student, I mean, school advisory committee. So the difference with our department is that, like, we're all under the Department of Family and Community Engagement, but each of us have a different sector that we focus on. So it's yeah. like PALS, which is Parent Action um, Leaders. So they get a stipend through our department mm -hmm. to actually recruit and to be a voice for the parents within the district, and we have, like, monthly meetings with them and then you have the Alumni Association. So we have about two or three people on that initiative who reach out and have meetings for various um, alumni groups that they're affiliated with 
to make sure people know what's going on in the district and to come back and be strong alum. So mm -hmm. that's the thing. Then you have uh, two other individuals over PTA, and they talk about all the guidelines in regards to getting an EIN and getting set up with the IRS and getting bank accounts because a PTA can act pretty much like a nonprofit within the school, mm -hmm. and they can raise money and do things in connection to the school. So that's the thing. And then you have Parent Academy, which is one of the larger initiatives, but mm -hmm. – that includes spending those Title I dollars towards mm. actual community engagement because if you don't use it, you lose it. Okay, okay. And I, I could throw so many other questions at you because the morphs of what would be best for students and parents, just in my opinion, comes from the champion of who's present mm -hmm. itself because it's a lot of good theories, a lot of good ideas, right. but the implementation deals with the team because even like you rarely hear this term anymore, LSCO. You know, mm -hmm. so like, you know, the learning school community organization. Right. So like it, it's that uh, that like many of the, the 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 morph and how that looks and how that partnership connects mm -hmm. deals a lot with, you know, who's in who's in that play. Mm -hmm. Um, we're, we're getting to the end. I'm going to have to bring you back. <laughs> this was like your Black History Month, but it's going to be playing in uh, <laughs> Women's History Month. That's fine. <laughs> but we're going to definitely get you back. We're going to figure out more. Um, classic Detroit is different questions. Mm -hmm. Uh, here we go. Very first car, year making model year. You got it. I had a Dodge Shadow. Um, I think it was ninety one. Mm -hmm. I don't remember, but early nineties. Yeah, it was probably a ninety one Dodge Shadow, and I got it in oh four after working in a hair salon hustling to buy it. So okay, how long? How long did you have it? I had it up until. 2000, maybe about 2000, maybe the end of 2006. Okay. Or, no, I lied. 2007, because I got into wow. a car accident. Yeah. Wow, so. that's messed up. So you kept it for a while. You yeah. was like, you was bumping like 50 cent, or you was bumping like <laughs> get rich and die trying. <laughs> right. All the way through uh, to, to, to graduation. <laughs> Pretty much, yep. Right. So. Exactly. It's mm -hmm. like, man, you went from from 50 to Kanye in that car. <laughs> right. right. That's what's up. Yeah. All right. So the next, you're the DJ at the Detroit Fireworks mm -hmm. at Woodward and Jefferson. You get to play three songs. What three songs you playing? To represent Detroit or just in general? It's just up to you. It, it can be what you feel like. You're the DJ. And it's at the Fireworks in Detroit. Yep. Uh, Marvin Gaye, what's going on? Definitely okay. playing that. Um. I'm I'm playing um, Boss Up and Get This Money. Okay. A lot of people select that song. Yeah. And <laughs> I'm going to play, um, I think it's called Ready Set with Cash Dial and uh, Big Sean. <laughs> like, okay. Yeah, I'll play that. Okay. All right. There we go. You're leaving with hip hop. They're going to come in woke. <laughs> yep. And they're going to leave. On the grind. That's what that song is all about. Exactly. Like. <laughs> you got that right. Yeah. Talk about it. <laughs> Talk about it. <laughs> All right. So last question. You can mm -hmm. rename Woodward after one Detroiter. Who would it be? Why? Hmm. Woodward. Mm, all of Woodward or like a certain section? All of Woodward. Hmm. Well, I don't know. I mean, I got, that's tough because I felt like, like, well, we're so big, but I'm going to pick somebody out the box. I'm going to say Brenda Scott. Okay. 
Interesting. Mm-hmm. Why? Because she um, she definitely made Detroit history with serving on Detroit City Council up until death, and she made a lot of headway with that. And a lot of people don't even really know her about her. So mm-hmm. I would I would say that just off the strength. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, there we go. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. If people want to get in contact with you and join and support, if they want to, um, I don't know, if they have little homies themselves, <laughs> if you are a parent and you want to help out, yes. what should they do? How do they get in contact with you? Um, they can email me or they can call 419-836-0771. That's my phone number. They can call if they want us to do a workshop even or if they want to help with the workshop. So either way, I'm open. What so. do you mean? Like, so you all will just come out and do workshops where uh, yes. where parents are? Yes. We have a partnership now with PAL, like okay. Police Athletic League, and we come out and do pop-up workshops with them. And we also have parents step up and say they wanted to orchestrate and facilitate workshops. So I have okay. a parent doing one on the science of hair care because – she does here okay. at Noble, so, yeah. Okay. There we go. Noble Elementary. Shout out to Kim Shirobi <laughs> and all those people over there hey, in the community Dr. house. <laughs> all right. Peace. Detroit is Different is where you get information, <laughs> artistry, history, music, and even comedy. Detroit is Different, a home for the culture of Detroit. Visit online at DetroitIsDifferent.com today.